Blog Talk Radio. Hey there, Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you as always, uh, live from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students, and I am joined right on time here by Tom Ambrose. How are you, Tom? I'm good. How are you, Ross? I am doing well. Um, And... um, Let's see. I don't know if this is one of our um, British Columbia colleagues. I know that Nina is not calling in today, but let's see. Um, Let me just check in real quick on area code 778. Area code 778, are you one of our panel members or are you calling in to chat? It's Carol. I'm calling from my cell phone today as we are having a snow day. Yes, I heard that you guys got dumped on. First time in 10 how years. Much, how, much, how much snow did you get? Well, it's embarrassing to say, but it's probably about two feet. Well, why Just is that embarrassing to say? Because <laughs> it sounds like not very much. I'm from Manitoba, you know. Two feet? Yeah, about two that feet. Qual- in the last that qualifies as a good reason to close schools. Enough. Okay, good. And let's see if from area code 888, this looks like a toll-free number. Are you calling into chat, or is this Susan? This is Just nothing. calling in to listen. Just calling in to listen. You can do that from the Lives in the Balance website, and we'd actually prefer that you do that so that we don't tie up a line, if that's Okay. Get on the Lives in the Balance website and go to the radio programs for educators, and you'll see a place that you can click to listen. Sound good? Thank you. Great, you bet. All right, so we have Carol and Tom here. We have a few emails to answer as well. But anything you both want to start with today before we get rocking here on emails or anybody who calls in? I've got nothing on my mind today. I've just been thinking about um, how to model solving problems collaboratively uh, in the current climate of our country. It's very tricky. (laughs) And I think that uh, uh, it's hard to explain to kids that it's not okay to tell other people what to do and put them down when it's being modeled so prevalently in our, our news and by some people who have made the unfortunate decision to to model things or to do things that they feel like are okay now that weren't okay just a, a couple months ago. Yes. I, I don't really know that we need to discuss that. I'm just, you just asked kind of what's on the tip of the tongue and it, it's funny because I just spent the whole day in a training for uh, um, the, the SAT for, you know, 11th graders and um, class gap suit test and, and uh, other assessments in Maine called the Empower Me assessment. And we've got this sharp focus on data and assessment, and, but there are also some very, uh, uh, how would you say it, Ross, uh, distortion around some modeling behaviorally, <laughs> I guess is the way I would put it. There's some, some incongruence between 
the way adults in our country are modeling for children, and I'm, I'm concerned about it. So I'm just throwing that out there. You know, I've always said that I thought that this model had a bigger implication for leadership or um, politics, and I think we need it now more than ever. You know, I um, think about that sometimes myself. Um, in fact, quite a bit. I've been sort of pondering the idea of writing an op-ed about that. And what I would write an op-ed about, if I ever had the time to do it, is that um, what we end up getting into in this country is dueling solutions, which is also known as a power struggle, in which the solutions differ completely. And um, what happens every four to eight years is that somebody with different solutions comes in and completely reverses everything someone with different solutions did for the past four to eight years. And um, I wouldn't call that progress, and I wouldn't call that problem-solving either. But it seems to me that the biggest issue is that um, nobody seems to be interested in looking for solutions that will address the concerns of both parties which is called a mutually satisfactory solution. I think that um, whenever I see unilateral solutions being imposed, whether that's by executive order or simply by a majority vote, I say to myself, that's not going to work because um, there's too many people who are unhappy with that solution, and today's majority is not tomorrow's majority. And the executive action imposed by today's president is completely different than the executive action imposed by tomorrow's president. All of that's about power, and all of that is about majority rules. And it's starting to seem to me that we would be a whole lot better off, as we are in many other types of human interactions, if we were to spend a whole lot more time on each other's concerns and then try to come up with solutions that address each other's concerns rather than merely solutions that only address our concerns because it's you know quite predictable what happens when there's an executive order that doesn't address the concerns of about 50% of the population and they start becoming much more vocal about what their concerns are. How could mm. it not be surprising that when a solution is being... But what I've been saying to people lately is if you've been happy for the last eight years, then now you know what it feels like to be one of those people who was unhappy for the last eight years. Um, nothing doesn't feel good to have your concerns go unheard, unaddressed. We have the technology to do it differently. I just don't know if our leaders who have other things influencing them, money, political party, power, posturing. I don't know if our political leaders know how to solve problems collaboratively, and I'm not positive that they're all that interested. So there's my two cents. It's not. People often say to me, but what if we have different concerns? Of course we have different concerns. That's true between kids and adults. It's between adults and adults. It's between nations and nations. The trick is to come up with solutions that address the concerns of both parties, rather than using a temporary majority to impose solutions that are only going to make 50.1% happy. 50.1% changes constantly. 
There's my mm. two cents. There's an op-ed there somewhere. I just don't have time to write it. Carol, you all across the border must be watching what's going on down here with both concern and amusement. Um, I'd say 90-10 uh, ratio, those two 90. things. Yeah. 90% concern. <laughs> um, there's not a whole lot of amusement, and there's definitely uh, a little bit of navel-gazing in terms of you know, where is Canada along the spectrum of looking bad as a nation? Um, we definitely may like to think that we're quite sanctimoniously never would be in that position, but um, there are elements of Canadian politics and society that are not far off, and I think it's giving That's us right. an opportunity to look really carefully at ourselves and what we want going forward for our country. And, of course, Americans have been historically similarly sanctimonious. Um, what I've been telling my Canadian colleagues and international colleagues who've been emailing me asking if uh, all is well is that we are about to find out whether the checks and balances that we have always relied so heavily on in this country are about to kick in. But there have been other points in American history where we have um, uh, sort of... Uh, closed our borders and closed into ourselves. Um, we did that before World War II, um, and then we had to re-engage. Um, we'll find out. The good news is that while hatred or um, prejudice may fly temporarily, it, it, uh, and we, while we've had points throughout world history where it got some legs under it, um, the better side of human nature seems to prevail. We have to uh, see if that plays out this time. We'll see. And now we've given people a 10-minute dose of something that has, well, may seemingly have very little to do with helping behaviorally challenging students at school, but you know what? It's something people have been thinking about a lot lately, so why not? Um, we do not have any calls, so why don't I turn my attention to some email here? Shall we? Sounds great. Hi, Dr. Green. I am currently serving as a program director at a residential treatment center in Virginia. I have been a staunch advocate and supporter of your work around CPS. One of the things that I remember from hearing you speak a number of years ago is that this approach, Plan B, best happens at a time when both the adult and the kid or resident are at an emotionally calm point where a discussion about what took place can occur. My question is, what strategies can I use and teach our staff to use when things are escalating, yet prior to the crisis point, in order to help the child de-escalate? I think that using CPS over time in the long run and understanding the lagging skills and unsolved problems will lead to less escalation because the child will feel understood. However, until we get to that point, what do you suggest around the de-escalation process? Well, I certainly have some thoughts along those lines, but I'd like to defer to you guys in the beginning at least. Tom, Carol, any thoughts on what to do in the heat of the moment? <laughs> and down. Uh, by that I mean, you know, it's really important to get a check on your own emotions because a lot of the time when a student is getting emotionally aroused to a point where, you know, things are being of concern, um, it's really important to... Notice what's happening to yourself and uh, be aware of your own 
cues, signals, your body language, how the student is perceiving you, and to model the calm, we reflect each other's emotions. And uh, so if we can manage and check our own reaction, we can help to just give the student a message and the cues to help calm themselves down. That's for me usually step um, and then there's always there's lots of other techniques, whether it's using NBC nonviolent crisis intervention, you know, de-escalation techniques. Um, there's all kinds of uh, tips and tricks to to help people um, calm down. Can't probably too many to go through right now. What do you think, Tom? Well, I think you're right on. I mean, I think that that it it it's funny because um, teachers typically develop enough of a relationship with their students where they do start to have a, a, um, a level of caring about kids that can, when a student escalates behaviorally, can push the adult button, so to speak, or trigger mm-hmm. some pretty, pretty intense emotion, which I always try to remind myself that when I'm upset, uh, I, I'm 35% less intelligent than I was when I'm calm. <laughs> um, and so, so I know I'm probably not going to be effective. Funny because I can speak to this one as a parent. You know, it's, it's it's easier for me to do this with someone else's kid when they're upset. So when it, you know, when I'm approaching a behaviorally challenging child and they're not going anywhere, they're not they're not in a space to engage. I think it's so critical for the adults to just back off, and as long as everyone's safe, right? I mean, and that's when we start to get into the whole debate about therapeutic holds or I don't even know if that's, I think that's an oxymoron, but you know, there's a point where if people are being relatively safe, but can't engage, it's better to leave it alone until you can, you can kind of go to the space where they can engage. But I think that it's also equally important for the adult to be able to know when they're not able to engage. I had a teacher once who did really struggled with the, sharing their concern without getting some sarcasm in there. Wonderful person who really loved kids. Goes through this whole great, really did a great job, you know, trying to understand the student's concerns and perspective, listened, and I was just kind of hanging out, observing to give the person feedback. And then, and then she literally said, and I couldn't believe it, but I can understand her perspective. She's like, well, it just really drives me nuts when you blah, blah, blah. And that's, that was her way to share her concern and perspective, but it just shut down the whole openness that she had just worked so hard to create. So I think if we're trying to create openness, um, doing it in the heat of the moment is, is not productive. And, and back to being a parent, you know, like I've got an 11 year old now, Ross, which you've known, you know, I, my, my oldest son certainly is very, very impulsive and feel free to make jokes about apples and trees. Um, but, (laughs) but he's a great kid, but boy, coming into his hormones and being 11 years old and the tone that he uses to talk to us as parents just pushes me right over the edge and and I, I have to remember you know like I can't teach him to use a better tone and be calm if I'm not using a good tone and being calm which gratefully my my wonderful wife is very good at reminding me of that so I'm just saying I just want people to remember that like even as hard as we work on this work there's a component of humanity in this we all get frustrated we all get upset we have to know that and know what to do with it when it happens, not try to act like it doesn't happen. Um, And I just have a few things to weigh on in here. It's true. Plan B 
is best done proactively. But there's a lot that's been added to the model over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years that um, really organizes things so that the vast majority of intervention can be proactive. And of course, the greatest addition over that time period has been the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, which helps caregivers yeah. proactively figure out what a kid's lagging skills are so that we have the right lenses on and figure out what a kid's unsolved problems are so we know what we're working on. And the ALSUP makes it possible for intervention to be 99.9% .9 planned and proactive, as I always say, because what are you going to do with all those unsolved problems that you have finally identified? And by the way, it's impossible to be proactive until those unsolved problems have been identified, because otherwise you don't know what you're working on and trying to be proactive about. What are we going to do with them? We're either going to set them aside for now because they are not high priorities, and of course that's called Plan C, or we're going to try to solve them collaboratively, which is Plan B, and those are for our high-priority unsolved problems. So the reason Plan B, uh, the reason the model is very good at keeping us out of crisis situations, and Carol, you're absolutely right, um, there's all kinds of crisis management programs out there, and um, they're very popular. And what they all basically teach us is to defuse, de-escalate, and keep everybody safe. But what, um, what causes us to find ourselves not in the crisis when you're applying CPS is not crisis management programs. Then it's, that, that's, that's late in the game. That's the aftermath. Uh, when you're applying crisis management, mm -hmm. you're dealing with what's going on in the aftermath of the problem, not with the problem itself. But the reason CPS keeps us out of crisis management mode is because the unsolved problems that we have set aside for now, Plan C, aren't causing challenging episodes anymore, uh, at least for now, because we aren't even expecting those expectations right now. And the ones we are working on with Plan B are getting solved, so those aren't causing challenging behavior anymore. So it's not because the child will feel understood that we primarily is the reason we are staying out of crises when CPS is being applied, although having the child feel understood is a very good thing. It's more that we are setting aside, that we're being very organized about it. We're setting aside certain unsolved problems and we're solving others and we've decided all of that proactively and the whole thing is very systematic. So bottom line is, should folks in schools and facilities be trained in de-escalation procedures? Sure. Should they implement CPS so they almost never have to use their de-escalation procedures? Absolutely. I, I think that, that Ross, I, I love how you talked about Plan C. Um, and I always love to hear when you, the way that you put it in such a clear step-by-step -step, um, process that, that really is ultimately relatively easy to follow if you have the you know the basic skills to to do it. I think the question that I have is just to piggyback. Um, I think I know your answer, but I, I could you talk about when a kid lights up the also and it's really hard to prioritize and choose. Because we have some behaviorally behaviorally challenging kids in our our organization that it, it's really difficult to prioritize what you're going to work on, what what you're going to plan C while managing the. I really feel like it's not good for kids to be held or 
or using crisis phone calls. I mean, but sometimes they have to happen, and and so I I I wonder sometimes about the the balance of the three kind of the three pieces working together. So we're solving these problems proactively, and we're we're um, only using crisis management when we have to, and these things, other things, we're not solving right now, but we know they're important. They're just not not the focus today. Could you talk about that? Well, that last piece is crucial because if you've got a kid who lights up the board on the LSIP and just has a ton of unsolved problems, here, here's that translated into real English. There are a lot of expectations being placed on this kid that he is having difficulty reliably meeting. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't make any sense to have a lot of expectations for a kid that he's going to have difficulty reliably meeting. That, that can't stay if, in place if we want to stabilize this kid. And so yes. Plan C is crucial for – I was uh, speaking um, in um, a southwestern state fairly recently and had a – teacher, we were going through the ALSIP, and she had nominated, she had just, uh, told us what an unsolved problem was, and it was that a kid was having difficulty reading a particular assignment. And I said, Kenny? She said, no, you can't, can't really read. <laughs> I said, then, then why do we have that expectation in place for him in the first place? And, and I find that this is something that schools struggle with in a very big way, um, but the bottom line is, if a kid is lighting up the board on the LSIP, if there are a lot of expectations that the kid is not reliably meeting, we're going to have to do something about that because that's a kid who is guaranteed to be unstable and volatile and reactive because that kid is spending his entire day in a school with lots of expectations being thrown at him, most of which he is unable to reliably meet. Um, And as I said, in Portland, Oregon, where I spoke last week, um, and if that's not something we can come to um, consensus on through a general ed mechanism, then by golly, that kid needs an IEP. So we can make it official and memorialize the fact that here are the bunch of expectations we are not placing on this kid right now. If we need an IEP to do it, let's do it. But isn't it a shame that we need an IEP to do it? This is a kid who's not reliably able to meet most of the expectations that are being thrown at him over the course of the school day. That just makes no sense whatsoever. I don't know if that's the answer you were thinking you were going to get. No, it's, it's, exactly, it's exactly what I wanted to, to have you say again because I had a feeling that some folks listening would be kind of thinking the same things. But I also always like to, you know, these, these radio programs are nice because I, I, I don't know about you, Carol, but I feel like I get kind of, Recalibrated or uh, it re-inspired by having these conversations <laughs> with some folks, and it's very helpful. But yeah, I think no, I, I actually. Yeah, sorry, ahead, I, I feel the same way. I get supercharged and and reactivated. And recently, Ross, you've been using, or maybe I've just been noticing the use of that term more frequently, which is getting kids stabilized. And mm-hmm. it brings to mind uh, a student that I've been working with in my school who was really causing a lot of distress for uh, the teacher who's actually kind of in on um, a short-term leave for another teacher, both the regular teacher and the the substitute that have been in. um, You know, I've been really concerned about this student, about his effect on other people, on other kids. Parents have started weighing in. 
And he was a student that just, we sat down to do the ALSIP and, you know, he lit up the board. So one of the things that I started to notice was even though we were only addressing one problem at a time, through the process of listening to him, his concerns, being willing to be flexible, helping him have some success, we were able to just kind of build enough trust with this little guy that when something was happening, that he had the trust that me or his teacher were, were going to be fair, we were going to be caring to him, that, that it was going to be safe to even just come for a walk with me or, you know, come to my office and eat lunch um, just to have you know, a little de-escalation time, and it made the crisis times, A, easier to defuse because the trust was there, and less critical because, you know, he, even if he started to, to get up to that level, um, if the teacher or I approached him, it was much more likely to be, you know, and almost a positive, you know, let's just, it's going to be okay, just come with me, and and it really just helped everyone. Um, so even though we weren't solving that that problem in that moment, um, the trust was there, and the relationship just made such a huge difference. I, I would say that that applies to adults as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> our, our adults in schools are, uh, um, Carol, I thought that was very, very, very well said, and I agree with you completely that the the you know, one, one time Ross explained to me, and, and it makes so much sense, that if you just – the empathy step alone is enough to make a difference. If you do a really good job with the empathy step and you just stay there, you understand the kid's concern and perspective. But I think that um, conversely, I, 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 as I've moved to central office and worked from the assistant superintendent's role, I can see with far greater clarity the immense stress that teachers and administrators have on them to do things that truly on some level are relatively impossible with the resources that they receive to do them with. Yep. And, and I say that, I say that sincerely out of the fact that I, I grew up in a, uh, Northern Maine in a relatively um, affluent community for, for Northern Maine. We had a very, very, um, very good uh, mill that was running. And, and so there was a lot of money in a good school system. Teachers there had quite a bit of resources relative to other rural areas, so I was I was really lucky, and I, I just I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for my teachers. And I talk to some staff today, and I see the kids that are coming through the door, the number of problems that are exponentially uh, exacerbated by technology, and and the ease with which people can be distracted from their struggles in life. And I just think, how how do I? How do I, I? I mean, how do I help these people to be successful? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I want to plan professional development that supports them. I want to. We all want to help them, and and I think that one of the keys is for the leadership to listen to the teachers and balance that with planning meaningful activities, um, because sometimes they don't know what they need. They're they're just they're just kind of running on fumes. And I, Carol, I'd love love to hear you think about that. But I think if we could also use this model to support the teachers it might help to do the same thing that it did for the, the student that you were just describing. Absolutely. I mean, it really just benefits everyone because when you listen to a teacher's concerns with the same set of beliefs and understandings as we listen to kids in the model, um, the exact same outcomes can be, can be seen. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it turns out that Carl Rogers was right, and that is that um, people do like to be heard, um, and that the mere um, fact of being heard can move people toward what he called self-actualization, and that is uh, figuring out who they are, what they want, and what direction they want to head in. In the CPS model, that's called the empathy step. And in the define adult concern step, that's where adults do something that they are frequently not clear on, and that is figure out what their concerns are. Mm -hmm. Um, Free of the pressure to impose a solution that the adult has divined about how this problem should be solved. But adults are frequently skipping past their concerns. One could have a lengthy discussion about why we adults are so in, so outstanding at skipping past our concerns. One theory, of course, the one that I would advance is because we spent most of our childhoods having our concerns uh, blown off the table. And so it's interesting, and this is, of course, what I talk about in Raising Human Beings, which is not a pitch for the new book, but it's the thing that I really wanted to be writing about, and and that is that um, those first two steps are really crucial because, as we were talking about in the beginning of the program, and Tom, this is where how we treat kids merges into mistakes we make as adults, and that is we often skip past each other's concerns and head straight for solutions, solutions that are only going to address our own concerns and that are not going to take the concerns of another party into account. Um, and now we're heading downhill. Um, now we're heading nowhere fast. Now, now the stage is actually set for power to rule the day and for conflict to be what results. But um, people who feel heard people who feel understood, calm down, and they are better able to listen to somebody else's concerns, and then they are able to do the hard work of coming up with a solution that addresses the concerns of both parties. Look how much hard work we put into fighting. When the hard work of coming up with solutions that address the concerns of both parties and the hard work of figuring out what those concerns are, that might be hard work, but at least you got something to show for it in the end. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and Carol, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one because I think what I've observed for teachers and staff, administration, all of us, is that sometimes we don't even know what our concern or perspective is, which is why I was saying earlier on in that program is it's hard for adults if they're agitated to use their their intelligence or their what does Nietzsche call it, the, the overman, you know, like your ability to kind of see yourself objectively and think about point of view is it is so hard for adults when they're frustrated with kids to, to come to that. And I think sometimes because of all the different pieces that bite at teachers, um, you know, expectations, IEPs, angry parents, state testing, I think sometimes our poor teachers don't even know that they're agitated because it's just the way they live all day. Hmm. I, I feel, you know, and so I, I just want to kind of acknowledge um, that teachers, teachers, um, taking the time to really think deeply about their concerns and perspectives when they have a minute to do it without everything else that's going on would be probably super helpful when, when you get to that statement of concern phase, which I think, Ross, I, I th- I've observed that to be the hardest part. Teachers generally can listen to kids. They care about them. You know what I'm saying? And they can learn the skills of asking questions and digging for information. But 
stating their concern can be really tricky. And I've seen it as an administrator when I sit down with a group of teachers and I say, hey, you know, I noticed X, Y, and Z, and so what's up with that? And, and they kind of look at me like, uh, I don't know. Like what, what they, 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 it, it, there's a, always a pregnant pause whenever something's put on the table. Like, is it safe to talk about what I'm really concerned about here? Or mm-hmm. just taking that minute to get in touch with our feelings about what we're concerned about. Yeah, and it's interesting, Tom, that you're saying that is in the role that you're in as an assistant superintendent because you wonder sometimes if people do know what their concern is but just don't necessarily feel safe or comfortable speaking about it in front of someone that they see in a position of authority. Um, yeah. I've... I'm always surprised when that comes up, even as a, as a principal. I've had my union reps recently tell me, you know, it's not that you're a scary person. You're absolutely nothing, not, not scary at all. But there's still this bit of reserve for people to, to really share their concerns in front of you. So, you know, that's an interesting um, piece of the puzzle, too, that, that if in a lot of schools that I know, it's, um, you know, it is an administrator that's, working to bring CPS into the school and, and is facilitating the conversate, the plan B conversations between a teacher and a student. And you've just kind of given me a little bit of a, hmm, I wonder moment about whether kids or teachers are really able to enunciate their concerns, depending on who well, they're in. Yeah, I, I think that's so true. And I, I think it, it, it uh, um, you know, it's, Ross taught me early on when I worked in Stanford when I first met him, that when you're the principal and the kid goes to the principal, they are expecting plan A, and it has been drilled into their heads by everybody that when you're with the principal, you're in trouble. So, so of course, I take Ross's approach and try with this one little boy that I'll never forget, and he's right back in my office the next day. <laughs> a couple of days later, after seeing him every day, I realized he just liked that I was listening to him. So he's getting in trouble to come to my office. It's beautiful, right? Like, it, I, okay, we can do this without you being in trouble. Like, hey, let's just plan some time to hang out. You know what I'm saying? I'm cool with that, um, but but I I guess my my uh, I, I I think that there is that issue of like positional power and leadership, Carol, and I, and I think that you know there was a time when I was a first a principal, I I really got uh, some really strong feedback that I wasn't using CPS as a principal, um, and and my response was some of these things aren't even for me as much as I want to fix things. There are some things that are district initiatives or issues such as class sizes that just aren't. They're not negotiable. They're not mm-hmm. negotiable for legal reasons. They're not, it doesn't mean that I wouldn't want to negotiate them. And I had to work really hard to figure out how to um, articulate my concern that, that I couldn't, that that wasn't something that I had the power to negotiate. Does that make sense? So I yeah. think it's really hard for us as leaders to, I can't negotiate whether or not we do federal testing or state testing. I can't data for accountability. I, I don't have the choice I work as hard as I can with our professional growth team to focus on whether or not, you know, how much growth does a kid make, not whether or not they make benchmarking. Because there are some great teachers that make tons of growth, but the kid still doesn't make benchmarking. That's still great teaching. So I I guess my my question for you on the principal level is, have you found that as you've reflected on that, that that you, like, I I found that if I just named it to people and said, hey, I, I really want to work together to solve this problem. These are the things that we have the ability to change. It's kind of like the serenity prayer or something. I don't know. That was my <laughs> joke. But, but like for schools, you know, like give me the wisdom to change the things that I can change and knowing the difference. But I also think taking it one more level is making the difference explicit in talking about it. That's the hard work. Yeah, and I, and I can see that because I feel often um, a, a fair amount of guilt and and 
kind of um, powerlessness when people are looking for help and the the thing that they want you can't give to them. Like with this little guy that we were just talking about, um, yeah. you know, the teacher really wanted me to to basically uh, get his uh, guardian to have him only come partial days, and I was kind of trying to explain like we we can't do that. <laughs> Even with our yeah. kids with, like, some of the most profound special needs, like, we can't have them on just partial day attendance unless there's, like, a medical or life-threatening issue. Like, we have – it's our responsibility, and I guess that it's super hard, and I don't have another full-time adult to put in your room, so we're just going to have to figure it out together. Yep. I think and that's the invitation. I think that staff – I, I've worked really hard to try to understand how to get people to understand that I, we, as leaders, want to help these kids as much as they do. And so I, I got an email the other day for someone asking, you know, can I hire a substitute teacher to be an ed tech in my room, in, in my building? I, I, hey, look, there are four or five places that I would love to hire an ed tech to help the kids learn how to solve their problems and, and learn the behaviors that are expected. But it goes back to the point that the the, in, the resources are finite, even though our hearts are not. That's beautiful. Write that down. I I don't know what else to say. I mean, I just thank you. That's very <laughs> kind of you. But I I just really want to think about. I don't. I think sometimes our principals and leaders don't get enough credit for the heart that they bring to the table, because we're we take the heat all the time for it, and really. I haven't met many – I've met some administrators that maybe weren't all, always about kids, but most of the time administrators generally really do care about kids. They just don't know what to, to do about it. I, I, did I, that's messy. It's messy to talk about. Does that make sense, Carol? <laughs> well, it's also, like, by the way, because administrators spend so much time having to deal with things that take them away from the kids – and um, don't require a great deal of heart. Um, A lot of distractions for teachers and administrators, of course, across the course from the school day. And, you know, even in my own professional life, there are things that um, I have to deal with that don't require any heart at all. They're just the minutiae of running a nonprofit or the minutiae of, you know, doing the things that I'm trying to accomplish. Um, it's when they become distracting and take us away from who we really are and what our mission is that the minutiae starts to get in the way um, and starts to interfere with our ability to actually pursue what we want to pursue. Very true. Shall we try to tackle one more email here? Sure. Sure. We've got just a few minutes left. This is actually somewhat relevant to what we've been talking about. It says, in the book Lost at School, Dr. Green also discusses doing a whole class CPS, solving a problem collaboratively. Do you have any examples of that? Um, And I'm wondering if you both have seen this done as um, in an entire classroom or if you've primarily seen it one-on-one. I have actually done it myself for a whole school. So we can, Carol, did you have a classroom? Because I've done a whole school CPS, and I can talk about that. You go first. I want to hear that one. I, 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 I had a situation um, where we were having some problems on the playground, and what I did was I went and interviewed every single classroom 
about their concerns and perspectives. Hmm. And then I put all of that, so I looked for common themes as to what they were talking about. And I listened to staff about what was going on. And then, uh, we, you know, then we had the, a staff meeting and I said, hey, guys, you know, I've met with all the kids in each classroom and some of you have been privy to this conversation or that conversation and I wanted to kind of pull it all together. So this is what I'm hearing is going on at recess and with the school. So I shared what I understood to be the concerns and perspective and I asked the whole group, do I have it right? And they said, yep, yep, but you're missing this, this, and this. And I said, okay, so let's add that to the, 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 uh, to the mix, you know, to the soup or whatever. And then I said, uh, um, so this is kind of what, what my concern is, is, is kind of not only about kids' physical safety, but it was about kids' emotional safety. So what, what can we do about this? And then we talked about it as a staff. And then I went back and talked to the kids about it again. You remember, it's a small school, so I only had like five first-grade classrooms, right? So I went to each first-grade classroom and said, okay, you know, so this is kind of what we heard your concerns are. Do I have it right? Yep. You know, they gave me a little more information. And I said, well, this is the, the grown-ups are kind of thinking this, and this is kind of what we're proposing for a solution. And, and it, it, it just seemed to really – Recess got a lot better after that. It took a couple days, you know, of just kind of meeting with kids and talking to people, and it seems like a really long process, but honestly, it probably took me three hours total, and the amount of energy that was dispersed at recess was unbelievable. So, I, and, and, you know, so you could use a similar process as a whole class, but Carol, I'd love to hear, have you, have you seen someone do it as a whole group or class? Yeah, I've I've kind of facilitated, and I've got a teacher who does regular class meetings, and he's familiar with the CPS model. So um, I think it was a couple of years ago, I think the example was that uh, he was teaching an upper-intermediate class, like grade 6, 7, and, you know, some kids were getting a little bit loose with their language, and some of the other kids were complaining, and so he kind of used the model to, to do the same thing, like hearing the kids' concerns, what was it about uh, the language that was, you know, causing people to feel uncomfortable and what was, you know, just helping the kids understand each other's perspective because, you know, I think some kids, they don't always, um, you know, kids don't always, especially at that age, they don't talk about their beliefs and what their families are, are teaching them their values. And so it was an opportunity to kind of gain some common understanding amongst them and, uh, you know, and then come up with a plan, like how can we do this in a way that's, you know, respectful to everyone that we want to have a classroom where, um, you know, everybody feels comfortable, but people can express themselves. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a similar process. I, I had a little chuckle when you said that it was a small elementary school with only five first grade classes for us, that would be an immense <laughs> elementary school. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Entire school CPS. That's heaven. We just need to try to apply it nationally. And um, even whole class CPS, um, a beautiful thing. Um, thank you both again for doing this. These are such interesting discussions we have every month, aren't they? Yeah, I love Absolutely. it. I was so bummed when I missed it last week. My, my son was sick, and I was like, oh, shoot, I forgot to call in. I had to take care of him, you know. Priorities, well, sir, um, priorities. We'll let fatherhood come before the radio program, so that's okay. <laughs> On that note, I'm assuming you're both in for next month, and uh, we will reconvene then. Sound good? All right. Excellent. Yep. Take care. Thanks, Rob. Talk to you later. That's going to do it for us today here on Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Talk to you next month.